Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. I bring greetings from Penang Wesley. It is a joy to be here in Penang Trinity to worship with all of you here. And I want to thank our sister Angela for the warm introduction. And I also want to thank Pastor Sean for the privilege of sharing this message this morning. It is always a joy to speak God's Word, and this morning's scripture is especially precious, knowing that our Lord was going to the, to the cross for our sakes, and yet He prayed for us. So this prayer is important for us to pay attention and strive to work for what He prayed for. Let us go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your love, for sending us Jesus as our Savior. Lord, thank you for this morning's scripture. They are precious. And knowing that it comes from your heart, help us to treasure this prayer and be obedient to your calling to be united in love with one another. May our lives be an effective witness of your love, not only in what we say, but in all that we do. And Lord, I ask that the spoken word be faithful to the written word and that will lead us to the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Unity is a foreign word in Malaysia. Foreign because since Merdeka, national unity has been an illusion. Our nation has never been united. Many of us know the meaning of racial discrimination, for we have endured verbal abuse, hate speech, racial slurs, xenophobia, and even called pendatang in our own country. And we were frequently reminded of it by politicians who spew hate-filled racial rhetoric as a means to divide the people for ulterior reasons. So ours is a fractured nation where for decades the minorities had suffered from economic, educational, and many policies of prejudice, discrimination, and inequality. Today, our hopes for unity lie in the unity government of Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim, who has pledged an inclusive Malaysia to unite the racially torn country where no race will be discriminated. It will not be easy there are many hurdles on the road to unity, but we take heart that the Prime Minister is sincere in his pledge for national unity. But conflict and division is not only a problem in Malaysia. We see this in America in the BLM riots and shootings in schools, workplaces and malls. There is conflict among nations the war between Russia and Ukraine, 
with no end in sight. And the Cold War between America and China that threatens world peace. And then there's tension between North and South Korea, tension in the Middle East, and unrest in many countries, Syria, Iraq, Ethiopia, and elsewhere. Clearly, not all is well in the world. People are not living in peace and harmony. You see broken marriages, spouses taking each other to court, dejected families, shattered friendships, racial conflict, religious violence, and broken lives. Our world is hopelessly fractured. At the root of all the discord and strife is sin in every human heart. How can all the strife-torn nations, divided communities, and fractured relationships be reconciled to live in peace again? Is there any hope for a fractured world? Yes, the Bible says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God loved the world, and He sent His Son on a mission to save the world. Our Lord's mission was to sacrifice His life for us. His vision is that all who believe in Him would live in unity such that their union would reflect the glory of God and shine as a beacon of hope to a fractured world. And our Lord's vision is our mission, to live in unity with one another and demonstrate the truth and love of Christ to a troubled world. My sermon, my sermon this morning will focus on the Lord's Prayer, where He prayed for the unity of all who believe in Him. And my sermon outline will have three main points. First, we'll look at what, it, what Christian unity means. And then we'll look at what are unifying factors. And there are three unifying factors that we can find in our Lord's Prayer. The truth of God, glory from Jesus, the Father's love. And then we'll look at how, when we are united, we bear witness to the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, let me give you a brief background to our scripture. Our text today is the Lord's High Priestly Prayer, which takes place during the last hours before His betrayal and crucifixion. He's gathered with all His disciples, and He knows His mission on earth will end at the cross. So He prays to the Father in verses 1 to 5, that he be glorified. But he does not want the community of believers to come to an end after his death and resurrection. So he prepares his disciples for their mission. He knows the difficulties and hardships that they will face. And so he prays for them in verses 6 to 19 that they be sanctified. But after they are gone, he wants the next generation and future generations of believers to continue with the mission. And so in verses 20 to 26, he prays 
that we would all be unified. Let's look at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Note that Jesus is praying specifically for those who believe in him through the apostolic message. So for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ, who believe, who came to Christ through the Gospels, this prayer is for you. And this is what Jesus is praying for. In verse 21, that all of them may be one. In verse 22, that they may be one. And in verse 23, that they may be brought to complete unity. Unity. Three times Jesus stresses this. So it is very clear that Jesus is praying for unity among believers. But before we delve into what the, what the word unity means, note that there is a deeper aspect of union that Jesus prays for. A union so binding that believers are joined to Him such that they are in Him and He is in them. In verse 21, He prays, May they also be in us. May all believers be in Jesus and the Father. May they also be in us. And in verse 23, He says, I in them and you in me. What it means is that Christ, in bringing us into union with Himself, brings us into a relationship with all that belongs to Him in His divine life, such that we enter into a partnership with His divine work. Now, this is a mystery and a miracle of God, not so easy to describe in words. Let me try to explain what this unity in Christ means by looking at some scripture. First, Christ's death and resurrection. Romans chapter 6, verse 5 tells us, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So we are united with Christ in His death, which is symbolized by our baptism where we die to our old self of sin. And we are also united with Him in His resurrection, thus receiving new life and made spiritually alive. Second, on justification and reconciliation. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So through union with Christ, we are justified before God, declared righteous and reconciled to Him. We don't have righteousness, but Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And third, on adoption and sonship. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right 
to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. So united with Christ, we are adopted into God's family as God's children. We are all brothers and sisters in God's holy family. And that's why Jesus taught us when we pray to refer to God as our heavenly Father. And number four, about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So united with Christ, we receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who empowers us and guides us in our Christian life. And number five, on sanctification and transformation. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And we all, who with unveiled faces, unveiled faces here means um, that we are not under the law, we are, we are all under the new covenant with Christ. So we all, with unveiled faces, as we contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, united with Christ, we are called to live in accordance with this new identity that we have with Him, to grow in Christ-likeness through the process of sanctification. And then, number six, assurance of future glorification. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. So united with Christ, we have the hope and assurance of being glorified with Him in eternity, enjoying eternal life in His presence. And it is our union with Christ that lays the foundation for our union with one another. Unless we understand how our union with Christ shapes our identity, our relationship with God, and our salvation, we will have a low commitment to unity with one another in the body of Christ. Thus, Jesus prays for the unity of all believers, that all of them may be one. And the unity that Jesus is praying for is to be modeled after the unity between the Father and the Son. So just as the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father, Jesus emphasized this in verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. Now, what is the unity of the Father and Son like? It is one of perfect unity, perfect love, perfect harmony, and perfect communion. It is one where there is no division, no strife, no disagreement, no fighting, and no discontent. That is the standard for the church. And the unity is not uniformity. Uniformity is about everybody being the same. 
It is a unity in diversity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, the apostle said, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. The church is the body of Christ where members come from different social and cultural backgrounds. and They are made up of all races and all have different skills, different gifts, different functions and different views. But this diversity is to be respected. Members who are drawn together through faith in Jesus must strive to live in peace and harmony with one another, loving one another, helping one another, doing good deeds together, forgiving one another, and doing everything possible to stay united. In other words, to live in peace and harmony with one another, something that the world cannot do. And unity expressed in this way will challenge the world by exposing its wickedness, its sin, and calling it to believe in Jesus Christ. That is how important Christians must strive to live in unity. Now let us look at what binds believers in unity. What are the unifying factors? There are many, but we will focus on three that uh, are in our Lord's Prayer here. A, we are united by the truth of God in His written word. Jesus prayed for all believers to be united by the truth of God in His written word. In verses 20 to 21, He prayed, I pray also for those who will believe in Me through their message that all of them may be one. So Jesus makes it clear that all of them may be one through belief in the apostolic message. And the apostolic message is the inspired Word of God. It was written by the disciples of Jesus who were guided by the Holy Spirit, where in John chapter 16, verses 12 to 13, Jesus promised them this, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. And on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit revealed the truth to the disciples and guided them in writing the 27 books and epistles that we call the New Testament of the Holy Bible. The Bible is God's truth, recorded exactly as God intended. And the Bible preserves God's truth because this is the only truth in the world. And it is through the Bible that God has chosen to preserve this truth for believers. That there is only one God, the Holy Trinity, comprising the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that believers are not confused with other religions, with their many gods. There is only one God. And that there is only one path to salvation. And, it's, and it is true, and it is true, Jesus Christ 
who is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is contrary to the popular belief that many people like to say that there are many paths, that all religion lead to God. But the truth of God in the Bible says that we can only come to God through Jesus Christ. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. And number three, it protects believers from falsehood. The Bible keeps all believers grounded in the truth of God and shields them from all the misguided myths and philosophies of the world. So Jesus prayed that all believers may be united in the truth of God in His Word, to believe in the same truth, to follow the same Lord, to proclaim the same message, to obey the same teaching, to suffer for the same cause, and to share in the same hope. It is through the Bible that God has chosen to preserve this truth and for believers to make Jesus known to the world. The Bible is our source of truth that binds believers in unity. And be glory from Jesus. In John chapter 17, verse 22, Jesus prayed, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Now, what is the glory that Jesus imparts to believers that will make them one, that will make them united? There are many interpretations of what glory means. Let us draw some distinction what this glory is not. It cannot be the self-aggrandizement glory that the world craves. Power, prestige, influence, status, popularity, wealth, and possessions. No. No, this is not the type of glory that Jesus gives to believers because it only leads to strife, ill will, and antagonism. People have fought and killed one another over it. It is the cause of all the division and strife and unhappiness in the world. So it cannot be this type of self-seeking, vain glory. The New Testament scholar, Leon Morris, gives a good explanation in his commentary in the Gospel of Jesus about what glory here means. And this is what he said, and I quote, Just as his true glory was to follow the path of lowly service culminating in the cross, so for them, the true glory lay in the path of lowly service wherever it might lead them. Lowly service. This is the glory the Father gave Jesus. Humility in the incarnation of earthly life and ministry, crucifixion, death, and resurrection. When he was on earth, Jesus chose the path of suffering and servanthood that made him look weak in the world. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, records this servanthood vocation of Jesus. Jesus himself said 
The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And Jesus shunned the self-aggrandizement glory that the world craves. So the glory that Jesus gives to believers is the glory of servanthood, service, and sacrifice. This is the glory that will promote unity among believers. Paul, the Apostle Paul, elaborates on this theme in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, when he said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Humility, valuing others above ourselves. When we cultivate these virtues and put aside selfish ambition, when we look out for the interests of one another, there is no bone of contention for Christians to fight or squabble or to separate. Servanthood, service and sacrifice is the glory that our Lord wants us to embrace, to foster unity. And see, the Father's love. Jesus closed his prayer by asking the Father to pour out his love. In verse 26, he prayed, I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. <clears throat> love is vital for unity. Jesus had earlier told his disciples in John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus wants love to be the distinctive mark of his disciples and that we show it to one another. Love is the key that holds any relationship together. Love is vital in relationships. And Jesus showed his love for us by dying on the cross for our sins. Now he asks us to show that love to one another. And our mutual love will also be a sign to the world that we are truly a people of God who loves the world. And love is also vital for any endeavor, any worthwhile endeavor in life that you may want to pursue. No matter how good, how virtuous, how noble our pursuits in life may be, without love, they would be debased, corrupted, and evil. What is the result when there is no love, even in noble pursuits of joy, holiness, truth, mission, and unity? Are these not noble pursuits? In his book, Two Cities, Two Loves, the late Christian writer James Montgomery Boyce explains, and he said, 
Joy without love is hedonism. Hedonism. It is any selfish search for pleasure that leads, and it often leads, to addictions such as drug addiction, alcohol addiction, gambling addiction, even TV addiction. And now, I would even say social media addiction. Hedonism is an exuberance in life and its pleasures without the sanctifying joy found in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And holiness without love is self-righteousness. Having a holier-than-thou attitude. The best examples are the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They strove to live holy lives but did not have love. And so they despised others who were not like them. And they even conspired to kill Jesus when he challenged their hypocrisy. And truth without love is bitter orthodoxy. Everyone claiming that their interpretation is the truth and others are lies, falsehoods, heresies. Isn't this what is happening in the Christian landscape? The disagreement over interpretation has led to separation into thousands of denominations. And mission without love is imperialism, a form of colonialism in ecclesiastical garb. An example would be the, would be the Spanish mission to the New World in the 16th century where the Spanish used military might to colonize Peru and Mexico. They plundered their gold and forced the natives to convert to Christianity by killing those who refused. And unity without love is tyranny. And tyranny develops in a movement where there is no love and no compassion for people, where its members are united by force or threat. And there are numerous examples in religious, political, racist, and terrorist cults. But when there is love, these pursuits show the marks of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Love for God the Father leads to joy. We rejoice in God and in all that He has done for us. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ leads to holiness. Jesus died to cleanse us of our sins and imputed His righteousness to us. So we must strive to live holy lives. And we know that we will see Him one day and will be like Him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3 tells us, all who have this hope in Him all who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. And love for the Word of God leads to truth. If we love the Word of God, we will study it and grow closer in our walk with God and we will also grow in spiritual maturity. 
and love for Christian brothers and sisters lead to unity. When we truly love one another, we will do everything possible to keep peace and harmony within the body of Christ, within the church. And love for the world leads to mission. For God so loved the world that He sent His Son on a mission. And it was a mission of love. Jesus did not use force to make the world believe in Him, but showed love and preferred death. John, in John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And because of His great love for us, we also have a message of love to take to the world. And the Lord entrusts us with the mission of making Him known and loved by all. And third, we are all united for witness. The prayer of our Lord that all of them may be one so that the world may believe is Jesus' desire that the unity of His believers would be a testimony to the world of the great love that God has for them. This calls for believers to be worthy witnesses. The gospel, of, the gospel message of Jesus Christ cannot be callously preached or shown. It must be borne by worthy witnesses. For we are often the Bible that people read. And the Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, he said, You yourselves are our, love, our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. The truth of who Jesus is must first take root in our very being. In other words, our identity, our behaviour, how we treat others, and how we live our life as a Christian must not be different from the message we bring. How can we say that God is love if we do not love one another? How can we say that we are one in Christ if we fight and bicker and separate? How can we say Jesus is Lord if He is, the not, if he is not the Lord in our life? Worthiness is the love and unity of the Father and the Son in us, reflecting Jesus to the world. There is a story of some young business executives who were late for a flight home. As they dashed through the airport lounge, in their haste, they knocked down a girl who was carrying a basket of apples. The apples fell all over the airport lounge. They did not stop, but just shouted, Sorry, sorry! But one of them, Andrew, felt sorry and told his friends to go on while he turned back to help the girl pick her apples. After he had picked the apples, he realised that the girl was blind. Feeling really bad, he asked what she was doing with so many apples. She told him she sold apples for a living. She said she had 100 apples and she sells each for $3. When Andrew saw that most of the apples were bruised, he knew she would not be able to sell them. So he said, I will buy them all. And he gave her $300 and told her to keep the apples. 
the girl was very grateful and kept thanking him. And as he turned to leave, she called out, Sir, who are you? Are you Jesus? Andrew, Andrew was embarrassed that he is compared to Jesus for doing a little kindness. But the point is that those who bring the gospel of Jesus are to be like him, doing good wherever you are. We must strive to live as Jesus lived. We not only study about him in the Bible, but pattern our lives after his. He was kind, so we try to be kind. He gave unselfishly, so we try to do the same. Devote our time, our energy, our resources to help others. Whoever brings the message of Jesus must endeavor to be like him. The messenger must be like the message. That is the extent to what being a worthy witness means. And one way of being a worthy witness can be through servant evangelism. Servant evangelism is service-oriented. Its purpose is to show God's love by helping people, doing acts of kindness, doing, doing good deeds in practical ways. It does not ask for anything in return. It is showing that love is free, that the love of Christ is free for the taking. Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, that as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And there is strong motivation that kindness has a greater impact on people. As Romans chapter 2, verse 4 tells us, that God's kindness leads people to repentance. Servant evangelism dispels any negative impression that people may have of Christians. It allows people to see the gospel lived out in the lives of believers. And when you show kindness to help people, you redefine their perception of Christ and Christians. People are also more amenable to respond to acts of kindness rather than force of argument. People outside of the church don't care about theology or doctrine. They need to know what God's love is like. They need to see love demonstrated in the lives of believers. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And kindness is the best form of persuasion. Our visible unity is our witness. The way that we love one another and live with one another is telling the world a story about the power of the gospel and the goodness of Jesus. Only when people see that God has changed and transformed us will they believe that Jesus truly came from God and that God loved the world. In the first century, the term Christian was a derogatory and insulting label for believers. Christian stands for little Christ, they were mocked as little Christ. They were despised and ridiculed, just as Jesus was despised and ridiculed. And the apostle Peter encouraged them in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16, when he said, If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. And history tells us that they behaved like Jesus. They were peaceful. They loved one another. They showed compassion everywhere they went. Doing good to one another, 
even to non-believers. And when they were threatened, they refused to retaliate in violence. They wore the name Christian with honor and distinction. May we also wear his name as a badge of honor, reflecting Jesus to the people around us. Let me leave you with these words from a song by Ron Hamilton, I Saw Jesus in You. I don't have the gift of a tune, so I'll read the lyrics. And it goes like this. When I enter heaven's glory and I see my Savior's face, I will offer him 10,000 years of praise. Then I'll find that special one in whose life I saw God's Son. And through tears of joy, with trembling lips, these words I'll say, I saw Jesus in you. I saw Jesus in you. I could hear his voice in the words you said. I saw Jesus in you. In your eyes, I saw his care. I could see his love was there. You were faithful. And I saw Jesus in you. And when I stand before my Father to receive my life's reward, and my soul is bathed in God's eternal love, and when this race on earth is done, and God sees the works I've done, more than anything, I long to hear my Father say, I saw Jesus in you. I saw Jesus in you. I could hear his voice in the words you said, I saw Jesus in you. In your eyes, I saw his care. I could see his love was there. You were faithful, and I saw Jesus in you. May this be your prayer. Amen. And now on the application of know, be, and do, know, know that we have been united with Christ and God the Father in a vertical union. And we are also united with one another as the body of Christ in a horizontal union. And all this done by the miracle of God. And we are united for the purpose of reaching out and making Christ known and loved by all. So let us be diligent and committed to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace with one another. And do live in a manner worthy of our union with Christ. Grow in conformity to His character and cooperate with the Holy Spirit to be transformed, to be like Jesus. And uh, on questions for reflection and discussion, uh, let me leave you with three questions. Number one, consider whether any of your attitudes and behavior is weakening unity in your marriage, family, or the church. Discuss ways to overcome these weaknesses and what actions or what activities can be introduced to strengthen the bonds of your relationships. This calls for self-reflection, for self-reflection and awareness rather than finger-pointing. And you may need also to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal our stubborn feelings and bring to our awareness and ask for strength and wisdom and humility to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Number two, how can we encourage and support one another to prioritize unity and seek reconciliation when conflicts or disagreements arise? And third, in what ways do you think the church can better reflect the unity that Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26? I leave these questions for your prayerful reflection 
discussion. Thank you.